Question 115 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Divine Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Divine Government by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 115. On the Action of the Corporeal Creature. Article 1. Whether a body can be active. Objection 1. It would seem that no bodies are active, for Augustine says, in On the City of God, 5.9, There are such things that are acted upon, but do not act, such are bodies. There is one who acts, but is not acted upon, this is God. There are things that both act and are acted upon. These are the spiritual substances. Objection 2. Further, every agent except the first agent requires in its work a subject susceptible of its action. But there is not substance below the corporeal substance which can be susceptible of the latter's action, since it belongs to the lowest degree of beings. Therefore, corporeal substance is not active. Objection 3. Further, every corporeal substance is limited by quantity, but quantity hinders substance from movement and action, because it surrounds it and penetrates it, just as a cloud hinders the air from receiving light. A proof of this is that the more a body increases in quantity, the heavier it is and the more difficult it is to move. Therefore, no corporeal substance is active. Objection 4. Further, the power of action in every agent is according to its propinquity to the first active cause. But bodies, being most composite, are most remote from the first active cause, which is most simple. Therefore, bodies are active. Objection 5. Further, if a body is an agent, the term of its action is either a substantial or an accidental form. But it is not a substantial form, for it is not possible to find any body, any principle of action, save an active quality, which is an accident. And an accident cannot be the cause of a substantial form, since the cause is always more excellent than the effect. Likewise, neither is it an accidental form, for an accident does not extend beyond its subject, as Augustine says in On the Trinity 9.4. Therefore, no bodies are active. On the contrary, Dionysius says, in On the Heavenly Hierarchy 15, that among other qualities of corporeal fire, it shows its greatness in its action and power on that of which it lays hold. I answer that it is apparent to the senses that some bodies are active, but concerning the action of bodies there have been three errors. For some denied all action to bodies, this is the opinion of Avicebron in his book On the Fount of Life, where, by the arguments mentioned above, he endeavors to prove that no bodies act, but that all the actions which seem to be the actions of bodies are the actions of some spiritual power that penetrates all bodies, so that, according to him, it is not fire that heats, but a spiritual power which penetrates by means of the fire. And this opinion seems to be derived from that of Plato. For Plato held that all forms existing in corporeal matter are participated thereby, 
and determined and limited thereto, and that separate forms are absolute, and as it were universal. Wherefore, he said that these separate forms are the causes of forms that exist in matter. Therefore, inasmuch as the form which is in corporeal matter is determined to this matter individualized by quantity, Avicebron held that the corporeal form is held back and imprisoned by quantity, as the principle of individuality, so as to be unable by action to extend to any other matter, and that the spiritual and immaterial form alone, which is not hedged in by quantity, can issue forth by acting on something else. But this does not prove that the corporeal form is not an agent, but that it is not a universal agent. For in proportion as a thing is participated, so of necessity must that be participated which is proper thereto. Thus in proportion to the participation of light is the participation of visibility. But to act, which is nothing else than to make something to be in act, is essentially proper to an act as such. Wherefore every agent produces its like. So therefore to the fact of its being, a form not determined by matter, subject to quantity, a thing owes its being an agent indeterminate and universal. But, to the fact that it is determined to this matter, it owes its being an agent limited and particular. Wherefore, if the form of fire were separate, as the Platonists supposed, it would be, in a fashion, the cause of every ignition. But this form of fire, which is in this corporeal matter, is the cause of this ignition which passes from this body to that. Hence, such an action is effected by the contact of two bodies. But this opinion of Avicebron goes further than that of Plato. For Plato held only substantial forms to be separate, while he referred accidents to the material principles which are the great and the small, which he considered to be the first contraries, and by others considered it to be the rare and the dense. Consequently, both Plato and Avicenna, who follows him to a certain extent, held that corporeal agents act through their accidental forms by disposing matter for the substantial form, but that the ultimate perfection attained by the introduction of the substantial form is due to an immaterial principle. And this is the second opinion concerning the action of bodies, of which we have spoken above when treating of the creation, in question 45, article 8. The third opinion is that of Democritus, who held that action takes place through the issue of atoms from the corporeal agent, while passion consists in the reception of the atoms in the pores of the passive body. This opinion is disproved by Aristotle, in On Generation and Corruption 1, 8, and 9, for it would follow that a body would not be passive as a whole, and the quantity of the active body would be diminished through its action, which things are manifestly untrue. We must therefore say that a body acts for as much as it is in act on a body for as much as it is in potentiality. Reply to Objection 1. This passage of Augustine is to be understood of the whole corporeal nature considered as a whole, while thus has no nature inferior to it on which it can act. As the spiritual nature acts on the corporeal, and the uncreated nature on the created. Nevertheless, one body is inferior to another, for as much as it is in potentiality to that which the other has in act. 
From this follows the solution of the second objection. But it must be observed, when Avicebron argues thus, there is a mover who is not moved, to wit, the first maker of all. Therefore, on the other hand, there exists something moved which is purely passive, that this is to be conceded. But this latter is primary matter, which is a pure potentiality, just as God is pure act. Now, a body is composed of potentiality and act, and therefore it is both active and passive. Reply to Objection 3. Quantity does not entirely hinder the corporeal form from action, as stated above, but from being a universal agent, forasmuch as a form is individualized through being in matter subject to quantity. The proof taken from the weight of bodies is not to the purpose. First, because addition of quantity does not cause weight, as is proved in On the Heavens 4.2. Secondly, it is false that weight retards movement. On the contrary, the heavier a thing, the greater its movement, if we consider the movement proper thereto. Thirdly, because action is not affected by local movement as Democritus held, but by something being reduced from potentiality to act. Reply to Objection 4. A body is not that which is most distant from God, for it participates something of a likeness to the divine being, forasmuch as it has a form. That which is most distant from God is primary matter, which is in no way active, since it is a pure potentiality. Reply to Objection 5. The term of a body's action is both an accidental form and a substantial form. For the act of quality, such as heat, although itself an accident, acts nevertheless by virtue of the substantial form, as its instrument. Wherefore, its action can terminate in a substantial form. Thus, natural heat, as the instrument of the soul, has an action terminated in the generation of flesh. But by its own virtue it produces an accident. Nor is it against the nature of an accident to surpass its subject in acting, but it is to surpass it in being, unless, indeed, one were to imagine that an accident transfers its identical self from the agent to the patient. Thus Democritus explained action by an issue of atoms. Article 2. Whether there are any seminal virtues in corporeal matter. Objection 1. It would seem that there are no seminal virtues in corporeal matter, for virtue, ratio, implies something of a spiritual order. But in corporeal matter nothing exists spiritually, but only materially, that is, according to the mode of that in which it is. Therefore, there are no seminal virtues in corporeal matter. Objection 2. Further, Augustine, in On the Trinity 3, 8, and 9, says that demons produce certain results by employing with a hidden movement certain seeds, which they know to exist in matter. But bodies, not virtues, can be employed with local movement. Therefore, it is unreasonable to say that there are seminal virtues in corporeal matter. Objection 3. Further, seeds are active principles, but there are no active principles in corporeal matter since, as we have said above, matter is not competent to act, in Article 1, Odd 2 and 4. Therefore, there are no seminal virtues in corporeal matter. Objection 4. 
Further, there are said to be certain causal virtues, Augustine, on the literal interpretation of Genesis 5.4, which seem to suffice for the production of things. But seminal virtues are not causal virtues, for miracles are outside the scope of seminal virtues, but not of causal virtues. Therefore, it is unreasonable to say that there are seminal virtues in corporeal matter. On the contrary, Augustine says, in On the Trinity 3.8, Of all the things which are generated in a corporeal and visible fashion, certain seeds lie hidden in the corporeal things of this world. I answer that, it is customary to name things after what is more perfect, as the philosopher says in On the Soul 2.4. Now in the whole corporeal nature, living bodies are the most perfect. Wherefore the word nature has been transferred from living things to all natural things. For the word itself, nature, as the philosopher says in Metaphysics 5 and Didascally 4.4, 4, was first applied to signify the generation of living things, which is called nativity. And because living things are generated from a principle united to them, as fruit from a tree, and the offspring from the mother, to whom it is united, consequently the word nature has been applied to every principle of movement existing in that which is moved. Now it is manifest that the active and passive principles of the generation of living things are the seeds from which living things are generated. Therefore Augustine fittingly gave the name of seminal virtues, seminalis rationis, to all those active and passive virtues which are the principles of natural generation and movement. These active and passive virtues may be considered in several orders. For in the first place, as Augustine says in On the Literal Meaning of Genesis 6.10, they are principally and originally in the Word of God, as typal ideas. Secondly, they are in the elements of the world, where they were produced altogether at the beginning, as in universal causes. Thirdly, they are in those things which, in the succession of time, are produced by universal causes, for instance, in this plant and in that animal, as in particular causes. Fourthly, they are in the seeds produced from animals and plants, and these again are compared to further particular effects, as the primordial universal causes to the first effects produced. Reply to Objection 1. These active and passive virtues of natural things, though not called virtues, rationis, by reason of their being in corporeal matter, it can nevertheless be so called in respect of their origin, forasmuch as they are the effect of typal ideas, rationis idealis. Reply to Objection 2. These active and passive virtues are in certain parts of corporeal things, and when they are employed with local movement for the production of certain results, we speak of the demons as employing seeds. Reply to Objection 3. The seed of the male is the active principle in the generation of an animal, but that can be called seed also which the female contributes as the passive principle, and thus the word seed covers both active and passive principles. Reply to Objection 4. From the words of Augustine, when speaking of these seminal virtues, it is easy to gather that they are also causal virtues, just as seed is a kind of cause. For he says, in On the Trinity 3.9, that as a mother is pregnant with the unborn offspring, so is the world itself pregnant with the causes of unborn things. 
Nevertheless, the typal ideas can be called causal virtues, but not, strictly speaking, seminal virtues, because seed is not a separate principle, and because miracles are not wrought outside the scope of causal virtues. Likewise, neither are miracles wrought outside the scope of the passive virtues so implanted in the creature, that the latter can be used to any purpose that God commands. But miracles are said to be wrought outside the scope of the natural active virtues, and the passive potentialities which are ordered to such active virtues, and this is what is meant when we say that they are wrought outside the scope of seminal virtues. Article 3. Whether the heavenly bodies are the cause of what is produced in bodies here below. Objection 1. It would seem that the heavenly bodies are not the cause of what is produced in bodies here below. For Damascene says, in On the Orthodox Faith 2.7, We may say that they, namely the heavenly bodies, are not the cause of generation or corruption. They are rather signs of storms and atmospheric changes. Objection 2. Further, for the production of anything, an agent and matter suffice. But in things here below, there is passive matter, and there are contrary agents, heat and cold and the like. Therefore, for the production of things here below, there is no need to ascribe causality to the heavenly bodies. Objection 3. Further, the agent produces its like. Now it is to be observed that everything which is produced here below is produced through the action of heat and cold, moisture and dryness, and other such qualities, which do not exist in heavenly bodies. Therefore, the heavenly bodies are not the cause of what is produced here below. Further, Augustine says in On the City of God 5.6, Nothing is more corporeal than sex. But sex is not caused by the heavenly bodies. A sign of this is that of twins born under the same constellation. One may be male, the other female. Therefore, the heavenly bodies are not the cause of things produced in bodies here below. On the contrary, Augustine says in On the Trinity 3.4, Bodies of a grosser and inferior nature are ruled in a certain order by those of more subtle and powerful nature. And Dionysius, in On the Divine Names 4, says that the light of the sun conduces to the generation of sensible bodies, moves them to life, gives them nourishment, growth, and perfection. I answer that, since every multitude proceeds from unity, and since what is immovable is always in the same way of being, whereas what is moved has many ways of being, it must be observed that throughout the whole of nature all movement proceeds from the immovable. Therefore, the more immovable certain things are, the more they are the cause of those things which are most movable. Now, the heavenly bodies are of all bodies the most immovable, for they are not moved save locally. Therefore, the movements of bodies here below, which are various and multiform, must be referred to the movement of the heavenly bodies as to their cause. Reply to Objection 1 These words of Damascene are to be understood as denying that the heavenly bodies are the first cause of generation and corruption here below, for this was affirmed by those who held that the heavenly bodies are gods. Reply to Objection 2 the active principles of bodies here below are only the active qualities of the elements, such as hot and cold and the like. 
If, therefore, the substantial forms of inferior bodies were not diversified, save according to accidents of that kind, the principles of which the early natural philosophers held to be the rare and the dense, there would be no need to suppose some principle above these inferior bodies, therefore they would be of themselves sufficient to act. But to any one who considers the matter aright, it is clear that those accidents are merely material dispositions in regard to the substantial forms of natural bodies. Now, matter is not of itself sufficient to act, and therefore it is necessary to suppose some active principle above these material dispositions. This is why the Platonists maintained the existence of separate species, by participation of which the inferior bodies receive their substantial forms. But this does not seem enough. For the separate species, since they are supposed to be immovable, would always have the same mode of being, and consequently there would be no variety in the generation and corruption of inferior bodies, which is clearly false. Therefore it is necessary, as the philosopher says in On Generation 2.10, to suppose a movable principle which by reason of its presence or absence causes variety in the generation and corruption of inferior bodies. Such are the heavenly bodies. Consequently, whatever generates here below moves to the production of the species as the instrument of a heavenly body. Thus the philosopher says in Physics 2.2 that man and the sun generate man. Reply to Objection 3. The heavenly bodies have not a specific likeness to the bodies here below. Their likeness consists in this, that by reason of their universal power, whatever is generated in inferior bodies is contained in them. In this way also we say that all things are like God. Reply to Objection 4. The actions of heavenly bodies are variously received in inferior bodies, according to the various dispositions of matter. Now it happens at times that the matter in the human conception is not wholly disposed to the male sex. Wherefore it is formed sometimes into a male, sometimes into a female. Augustine quotes this as an argument against divination by stars, because the effects of the stars are varied even in corporeal things, according to the various dispositions of matter. Article 4 whether the heavenly bodies are the cause of human actions. Objection 1. It would seem that the heavenly bodies are the cause of human actions. For since the heavenly bodies are moved by spiritual substances, as stated above in question 110, article 3, they act by virtue thereof as their instruments. But those spiritual substances are superior to our souls. Therefore it seems that they can cause impressions on our souls, and thereby cause human actions. Objection 2. Further, every multiform is reducible to a uniform principle, but human actions are various and multiform. Therefore, it seems that they are reducible to the uniform movements of heavenly bodies, as to their principles. Objection 3. Further, astrologers often foretell the truth concerning the outcome of wars and other human actions, of which the intellect and will are the principles. But they could not do this by means of the heavenly bodies, unless these were the cause of human actions. Therefore, the heavenly bodies are the cause of human actions. On the contrary, Damascene says in On the Orthodox Faith 2.7 that the heavenly bodies are by no means the cause of human actions. 
I answer that the heavenly bodies can directly and of themselves act on bodies, as stated above in Article 3. They can act directly, indeed, on those powers of the soul which are the acts of corporeal organs, but accidentally, because the acts of such powers must needs be hindered by obstacles in the organs. Thus an eye, when disturbed, cannot see well. Wherefore, if the intellect and will were powers affixed to corporeal organs, as some maintained, holding that intellect does not differ from sense, it would follow of necessity that the heavenly bodies are the cause of human choice and action. It would also follow that man is led by natural instinct to his actions, just as other animals, in which there are powers other than those which are affixed to corporeal organs. For whatever is done here below in virtue of the action of heavenly bodies is done naturally. It would therefore follow that man has no free will, and that he would have determinate actions, like other natural things, all of which is manifestly false and contrary to human habit. It must be observed, however, that indirectly and accidentally the impressions of heavenly bodies can reach the intellect and will, forasmuch, namely, as both intellect and will receive something from the inferior powers which are affixed to corporeal organs. But in this the intellect and will are differently situated. For the intellect of necessity receives from the inferior apprehensive powers. Wherefore, if the imaginative a cogitative or memorative powers be disturbed, the action of the intellect is of necessity disturbed also. The will, on the contrary, does not of necessity follow the inclination of the inferior appetite, for although the passions of the irascible and concupiscible have a certain force of inclining the will, nevertheless the will retains the power of following the passions or repressing them. Therefore, the impressions of the heavenly bodies by virtue of which the inferior powers can be changed has less influence on the will, which is the proximate cause of human actions, than on the intellect. To maintain, therefore, that heavenly bodies are the cause of human actions is proper to those who hold that intellect does not differ from sense. Wherefore, some of these said that such is the will of man, as in the day which the father of men and the gods bring on. Odyssey eighteen one hundred thirty five. Since therefore it is manifest that intellect and will are not acts of corporeal organs, it is impossible that heavenly bodies be the cause of human actions. Reply to Objection 1. The spiritual substances that move the heavenly bodies do indeed act on corporeal things by means of the heavenly bodies, but they act immediately on human intellect by enlightening it. On the other hand, they cannot compel the will, as stated above in question 111, article 2. Reply to objection 2. Just as the multiformity of corporeal movements is irreducible to the uniformity of heavenly movement as to its cause, so the multiformity of actions proceeding from the intellect and the will is reduced to a uniform principle, which is the divine intellect and will. Reply to objection 3. The majority of men follow their passions, which are movements of the sensitive appetite, in which movements of the heavenly bodies can cooperate. But few are wise enough to resist these passions. Consequently, astrologers have been able to foretell the truth in the majority of cases, especially in a general way. But not in particular cases, for nothing prevents man from resisting his passions by his free will. 
wherefore the astrologers themselves are wont to say that the wise man is stronger than the stars ptolemy centiloquium proposition five for as much as to wit he conquers his passions article five whether heavenly bodies can act on the demons objection one it would seem that heavenly bodies can act on the demons for the demons according to certain phases of the moon can harass men who on that account are called lunatics as appears from mat four twenty four and seventeen fourteen but this would not be if they were not subject to the heavenly bodies therefore the demons are subject to them objection two further necromancers observe certain constellations in order to invoke the demons but these would not be invoked through the heavenly bodies unless they were subject to them therefore they are subject to them objection three further heavenly bodies are more powerful than inferior bodies but the demons are confined to certain inferior bodies namely herbs stones animals and to certain sounds and words forms and figures as porphyry says quoted by augustine in the city of god ten eleven much more therefore are the demons subject to the action of heavenly bodies on the contrary the demons are superior in the order of nature to the heavenly bodies but the agent is superior to the patient as augustine says in on the literal interpretation of genesis twelve sixteen therefore the demons are not subject to the action of heavenly bodies i answer that there have been three opinions about the demons in the first place the peripatetics denied the existence of demons and held that what is ascribed to the demons according to the necromatic art is affected by the power of the heavenly bodies this is what augustine in the city of god ten eleven relates as having been held by porphyry namely that on earth men fabricate certain powers useful in producing certain effects of the stars but this opinion is manifestly false for we know by experience that many things are done by demons if for which the power of heavenly bodies would in no way suffice for instance that a man in a state of delirium should speak an unknown tongue recite poetry and authors of whom he has no previous knowledge that necromancers make statues to speak and move and other like things for this reason the platonists were led to hold that demons are animals with an aerial body and a passive soul as apuleius says quoted by augustine in the city of god eight sixteen and this is the second of the opinions mentioned above according to which it could be said that demons are subject to heavenly bodies in the same way as we have said man is subject thereto in article four but this opinion is proved to be false from what we have said above in question fifty one article one for we hold that demons are spiritual substances not united to bodies hence it is clear that they are subject to the action of heavenly bodies neither essentially nor accidentally neither directly nor indirectly reply to objection one that demons harass men according to certain phases of the moon happens in two ways firstly they do so in order to defame god's creature as jerome in his homily on matthew four twenty four and chrysostom in his homily sixty two on matthew say secondly because as they are unable to effect anything save by means of the natural forces as stated above 
in question 114, article 4, reply to objection 2. They take into account the aptitude of bodies for the intended result. Now it is manifest that the brain is the most moist of all the parts of the body, as Aristotle says. Wherefore it is the most subject to the action of the moon, the property of which is to move what is moist. And it is precisely in the brain that the animal forces culminate. Wherefore the demons, according to certain phases of the moon, disturb man's imagination, when they observe that the brain is thereto disposed. Reply to Objection 2. Demons, when summoned through certain constellations, come for two reasons. Firstly, in order to lead man into the error of believing that there is some divine power in the stars. Secondly, because they consider that under certain constellations corporeal matter is better disposed for the result for which they are summoned. Reply to Objection 3. As Augustine says on the City of God, 11.6, the demons are enticed through various kinds of stones, herbs, trees, animals, songs, rites, not as an animal is enticed by food, but as a spirit by signs, that is to say, forasmuch as these things are offered to them in token of the honor due to God, of which they are covetous. Article 6. Whether heavenly bodies impose necessity on things subject to their action. Objection 1. It would seem that heavenly bodies impose necessity on things subject to their action. For given a sufficient cause, the effect follows of necessity. But heavenly bodies are a sufficient cause of their effects. Since, therefore, heavenly bodies, with their movements and dispositions, are necessary beings, it seems their effects follow of necessity. Objection 2. Further, an agent's effect results of necessity in matter, when the power of the agent is such that it can subject the matter to itself entirely. But the entire matter of inferior bodies is subject to the power of heavenly bodies, since this is a higher power than theirs. Therefore, the effect of the heavenly bodies is of necessity received in corporeal matter. Objection 3. Further, if the effect of the heavenly body does not follow of necessity, this is due to some hindering cause. But any corporeal cause that might possibly hinder the effect of a heavenly body must of necessity be reducible to some heavenly principle, since the heavenly bodies are the causes of all that takes place here below. Therefore, since also that heavenly principle is necessary, it follows that the effect of the heavenly body is necessarily hindered. Consequently, it would follow that all that takes place here below happens of necessity. On the contrary, the philosopher says in On Divination by Dreams, It is not incongruous that many of the signs observed in bodies of occurrences in the heavens, such as rain and wind, should not be fulfilled. Therefore, not all the effects of heavenly bodies take place of necessity. I answer that this question is partly solved by what was said above, in Article 4, and in part presents some difficulty. For it was shown that, although the action of heavenly bodies produces certain inclinations in corporeal nature, the will nevertheless does not of necessity follow these inclinations. Therefore, there is nothing to prevent the effect of heavenly bodies being hindered by the action of the will, not only in man himself, but also in other things to which human action extends. But in natural things there is no such principle, endowed with freedom to follow or not to follow the impressions produced by heavenly agents. 
Wherefore, it seems that in such things at least everything happens of necessity, according to the reasoning of some of the ancients who, supposing that everything that is has a cause, and that given the cause the effect follows of necessity, concluded that all things happen of necessity. This opinion is refuted by Aristotle in Metaphysics 6 in Didacles 5.3 as to this double supposition. For in the first place it is not true that, given any cause whatever, the effect must follow of necessity. For some causes are so ordered to their effects as to produce them not of necessity but in the majority of cases, and in the minority to fail in producing them. But that such cases do fail in the minority of cases is due to some hindering cause. Consequently, the above-mentioned difficulty seems not to be avoided, since the cause in question is hindered of necessity. Therefore, we must say in the second place that everything that is a being per se has a cause. But what is accidentally has not a cause, because it is not truly a being, since it is not truly one. For that a thing is white has a cause, likewise that a man is musical has not a cause, but that a being is white musical has not a cause, because it is not truly a being, nor truly one. Now it is manifest that a cause which hinders the action of a cause so ordered to its effect as to produce it in the majority of cases clashes sometimes with this cause by accident and the clashing of these two causes, inasmuch as it is accidental, has no cause. Consequently, what results from this clashing of causes is not to be reduced to a further pre-existing cause from which it follows of necessity. For instance, that some terrestrial body take fire in the higher regions of the air and fall to the earth is caused by some heavenly power. Again, that there be on the surface of the earth some combustible matter is reducible to some heavenly principle. But that the burning body should alight on this matter and set fire to it is not caused by a heavenly body, but is accidental. Consequently, not all the effects of heavenly bodies result of necessity. Reply to Objection 1. The heavenly bodies are causes of effects that take place here below, through the means of particular inferior causes, which can fail in their effects in the minority of cases. Reply to Objection 2. The power of a heavenly body is not infinite. Wherefore, it requires a determinate disposition in matter, both as to local distance and as to other conditions, in order to produce its effect. Therefore, as local distance hinders the effect of a heavenly body, for the sun has not the same effect in heat in Dacia as in Ethiopia, so the grossness of matter, its low or high temperature, or other such disposition, can hinder the effect of a heavenly body. Reply to Objection 3. Although the cause that hinders the effect of another cause can be reduced to a heavenly body as its cause, nevertheless the clashing of two causes, being accidental, is not reduced to the causality of a heavenly body, as stated above. End of question number 115. Question 116 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, On the Divine Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary J. Summa Theologica, 
Pars Prima, On the Divine Government, by St. Thomas Aquinas, translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province, Question 116, On Fate, in Four Articles. We come now to the consideration of fate. Under this head there are four points of inquiry. 1. Is there such a thing as fate? 2. Where is it? 3. Is it unchangeable? 4. Are all things subject to fate? First article. Whether there be such a thing as fate. Objection 1. It would seem that fate is nothing, for, Gregory says in a homily for the Epiphany, homily 10 in the Gospels, far be it from the hearts of the faithful to think that fate is anything real. Objection 2. Further, what happens by fate is not unforeseen, for, as Augustine says, the city of God, 5, 4, fate is understood to be derived from the verb fari, which means to speak, as though things were said to happen by fate, which are forespoken by one who decrees them to happen. Now what is foreseen is neither lucky nor chance-like. If therefore things happen by fate, there will be neither luck nor chance in the world. On the contrary, what does not exist cannot be defined, but Boethius, Constellation of Philosophy, 4, defines fate thus. Fate is a disposition inherent to changeable things, by which providence connects each one with its proper order. I answer that, in this world, some things seem to happen by luck or chance. Now, it happens sometimes that something is lucky or chance-like as compared to inferior causes, which, if compared to some higher cause, is directly intended. For instance, if two servants are sent by their master to the same place, the meeting of the two servants in regard to themselves is by chance, but, as compared to the master, who had ordered it, it is directly intended. So, there were some who refused to refer to a higher cause such events which, by luck or chance, take place here below. These denied the existence of fate and providence, as Augustine relates of Tully, the city of God, 5, 9. And this is contrary to what we have said above about providence, question 22, article 2. On the other hand, some have considered that everything that takes place here below by luck or by chance, whether in natural things or in human affairs, is to be reduced to a superior cause, namely the heavenly bodies. According to these, fate is nothing else than a disposition of the stars under which each one is begotten or born. See St. Augustine, the City of God, 5, 1, 8, and 9. But this will not hold. First, as to human affairs, because we have proved above, question 115, article 4, that human actions are not subject to the action of heavenly bodies, save accidentally and indirectly. Now the cause of fate, since it has the ordering of things that happen by fate, must of necessity be directly and of itself the cause of what takes place. Secondly, as to all things that happen accidentally, for it has been said, question 115, article 6, that what is accidental is properly speaking neither a being nor a unity. But every action of nature terminates in some one thing. Wherefore it is impossible for that which is accidental to be the proper effect of an active natural principle. No natural cause can therefore have for its proper effect that a man intending to dig a grave finds a treasure. Now it is manifest that A acts after the manner of a natural principle, wherefore its effects in this world are natural. It is therefore impossible that any active power of a heavenly body be the cause of what happens by accident here below, whether by luck or by chance. We must therefore say that what happens here by accident, both in natural things and in human affairs, is reduced to a preordaining cause, which is divine providence for nothing hinders that which happens by accident being considered as one by an intellect. Otherwise the intellect could not form this proposition. The digger of a grave found a treasure. 
And just as an intellect can apprehend this, so can it affect it. For instance, someone who knows a place where a treasure is hidden might instigate a rustic, ignorant of this, to dig a grave there. Consequently, nothing hinders what happened here by accident, by luck or by chance, being reduced to some ordering cause which acts by the intellect, especially the divine intellect. For God alone can change the will, as shown above, question 105, article 4. Consequently, the ordering of human actions, the principle of which is the will, must be ascribed to God alone. So, therefore, inasmuch as all that happens here below is subject to divine providence, as being preordained, and as it were, forespoken, we can admit the existence of fate. Although the holy doctors avoided the use of this word on account of those who twisted its application to a certain force in the position of the stars. Hence Augustine says, the City of God, 5.1, If anyone ascribes human affairs to fate, meaning thereby the will or power of God, let him keep to his opinion, but hold his tongue. For this reason Gregory denies the existence of fate, wherefore the first objection solution is manifest. Reply Objection 2. Nothing hinders certain things happening by luck or by chance if compared to their proximate causes, but not if compared to divine providence, whereby nothing happens at random in the world, as Augustine says. 83 different questions. Question 24. Second article. Whether fate is in created things. Objection 1. It would seem that fate is not in created things, for Augustine says, the City of God, 5.1, that the divine will or power is called fate. But the divine will or power is not in creatures but in God, therefore fate is not in creatures but in God. Objection 2. Further, fate is compared to things that happen by fate, as their cause, as the very use of the word proves. The sole cause that of itself affects what takes place by accident here below is God alone, as stated above, Article 1. Therefore, fate is in God, and not in creatures. Objection 3. Further, if fate is in creatures, it is either a substance or an accident, and whichever it is, it must be multiplied according to the number of creatures. Since, therefore, fate seems to be one thing only, it seems that the fate is not in creatures, but in God. On the contrary, Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy, for fate is a disposition inherent to changeable things. I answer that, as is clear from what has been stated above, question 22, article 3, and question 103, article 6, divine providence produces effects through immediate causes. We can therefore consider the ordering of the effects in two ways. Firstly, as being in God himself, and thus the ordering of the effects is called providence. But if we consider this ordering as being in the immediate causes ordered by God to the production of certain effects, thus it has the nature of fate. This is what Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy 4. Fate is worked out when divine providence is served by certain spirits, whether by the soul or by all nature itself which obeys him, whether by the heavenly movements of the stars, whether by the angelic power, or by the ingenuity of the demons, whether by some of these, or by all, the chain of fate is forged. Of each of these things we have spoken above. Article 1, question 104, Article 2, question 110, Article 1, Question 113, and Question 114. It is therefore manifest that fate is in the created causes themselves, as ordered by God to the production of their effects. Reply Objection 1. The ordering itself of second causes, which Augustine, the City of God, 5.8, calls the series of causes, has not the nature of fate except as dependent on God. Wherefore the divine power or will can be called fate as being the cause of fate, but essentially, fate is the very disposition or series, i.e., order of second causes. Reply Objection 2. Fate has the nature of a cause, 
just as much as the second causes themselves, the ordering of which is called fate. Reply Objection 3. Fate is called a disposition, not that disposition which is a species of quality, but in the sense in which it signifies order, which is not a substance but a relation. And if this order be considered in relation to its principle, it is one, and thus fate is one. But if it be considered in relation to its effects, or to the immediate causes, this fate is multiple. In this sense the poet wrote, Thy fate draws thee. Third article. Whether fate is unchangeable. Objection 1. It seems that fate is not unchangeable, for Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy 4, As reasoning is to the intellect, as the begotten is to that which is, as time to eternity, as the circle to its center, so is the fickle chain of fate to the unwavering simplicity of providence. Objection 2. Further, the philosopher says, Topics 2.7. If we be moved, what is in us is moved. But fate is a disposition inherent to changeable things, as Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy 4. Therefore fate is changeable. Objection 3. Further, if fate is unchangeable, what is subject to fate happens unchangeably and of necessity. But things ascribed to fate seem principally to be contingencies. Therefore there would be no contingencies in the world, but all things would happen of necessity. On the contrary, Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy 4, that fate is an unchangeable disposition. I answer that the disposition of second causes which we call fate can be considered in two ways. Firstly, in regard to the second causes, which are thus disposed or ordered. Secondly, in regard to the first principle, namely, God, by whom they are ordered. Some, therefore, have held that the series itself of dispositions of causes is in itself necessary, so that all things would happen of necessity, for this reason that each effect has a cause, and, given a cause, the effect must follow of necessity. But this is false, as proved above. Question 115, Article 6. Others, on the other hand, held that fate is changeable, even as dependent on divine providence. Wherefore the Egyptians said that fate could be changed by certain sacrifices, as Gregory of Nyssa says, Nemesius de homine. This, too, has been disproved above for the reason that it is repugnant to divine providence. We must therefore say that fate, considered in regard to second causes, is changeable, but as subject to divine providence it derives a certain unchangeableness, not of absolute but of conditional necessity. In this sense we say that this conditional is true and necessary. If God foreknew that this would happen, it will happen. Wherefore Boethius, having said that the chain of fate is fickle, shortly afterwards adds, which, since it is derived from an unchangeable providence, must also itself be unchangeable. From this the answers to the objections are clear. Fourth article. Whether all things are subject to fate. Objection 1. It seems that all things are subject to fate, for Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy 4, the chain of fates moves the heaven and the stars, tempers the elements to one another, and models them by a reciprocal transformation. By fate all things that are born into the world and perish are renewed in a uniform progression of offspring and seed. Nothing, therefore, seems to be excluded from the domain of fate. Objection 2. Further, Augustine says, the City of God, 5, 1, that fate is something real, as referred to the divine will and power. But the divine will is cause of all things that happen, as Augustine says, on the Trinity 3, 1, and what follows. Therefore all things are subject to fate. Objection 3. Further, Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy 4, that fate is a disposition inherent to changeable things. But all creatures are changeable, and God alone is truly unchangeable, as stated above, question 9, article 2. Therefore fate is in all things. 
On the contrary, Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy 4, that some things subject to providence are above the ordering of fate. I answer that, as stated above, Article 2, fate is the ordering of second causes to effects foreseen by God. Whatever, therefore, is subject to second causes is subject also to fate, but whatever is done immediately by God, since it is not subject to second causes, neither is it subject to fate. Such are creation, the glorification of spiritual substances, and the like. And this is what Boethius says, Consolation of Philosophy 4, namely that those things which are nigh to God have a state of immobility, and exceed the changeable order of fate. Hence it is clear that the further a thing is from the first mind, the more it is involved in the chain of fate, since so much the more is bound up with second causes. Reply Objection 1. All the things mentioned in this passage are done by God by means of second causes. For this reason they are contained in the order of fate. But it is not the same with everything else, as stated above. Reply Objection 2. Fate is to be referred to the divine will and power as to its first principle. Consequently, it does not follow that whatever is subject to the divine will or power is subject also to fate, as already stated. Reply Objection 3. Although all creatures are in some way changeable, yet some of them do not proceed from changeable created causes, and these, therefore, are not subject to fate, as stated above. End of question 116. Question 117 of Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica, Pars Prima, on the Divine Government by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 117. Of Things Pertaining to the Action of Man. Article 1. Whether One Man Can Teach Another. Objection 1. It would seem that one man cannot teach another. For the Lord says, in Matthew 22, 8, Be not you called rabbi. On which the gloss of Jerome says, Lest you give to man the honor due to God. Therefore, to be a master is properly an honor due to God. But it belongs to a master to teach. Therefore, man cannot teach, and this is proper to God. Objection 2. Further, if one man teaches another, this is only inasmuch as he acts through his own knowledge, so as to cause knowledge in the other. But equality, through which anyone acts so as to produce his like, is an active quality. Therefore, it follows that knowledge is an active quality just as heat is. Objection 3. Further, for knowledge we require intellectual light, and the species of the thing understood. But a man cannot cause either of these in another man. Therefore, a man cannot, by teaching, cause knowledge in another man. Objection 4. Further, the teacher does nothing in regard to a disciple save to propose to him certain signs, so as to signify something by words or gestures. But it is not possible to teach anyone so as to cause knowledge in him by putting signs before him. For these are signs either of things that he knows, or of things he does not know. If of things that he knows, he to whom those signs are proposed is already in the possession of knowledge, and does not acquire it from the master. If they are signs of things that he does not know, he can learn nothing therefrom. For instance, if one were to speak Greek to a man 
who only knows Latin, he would learn nothing thereby. Therefore, in no way can a man cause knowledge in another by teaching him. On the contrary, the Apostle says, in 1 Timothy 2.7, whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle, a doctor of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I answer that, on this question there have been various opinions. For Averroes, commenting on On the Soul 3, maintains that all men have one passive intellect, in common, as stated above in question 76, article 2. From this it follows that the same intelligible species belong to all men. Consequently, he held that one man does not cause another to have a knowledge distinct from that which he has himself, but that he communicates the identical knowledge which he has himself, by moving him to order rightly the phantasms in his soul, so that they may be rightly disposed for intelligible apprehension. This opinion is true so far as knowledge is the same in disciple and master, if we consider the identity of the thing known, for the same objective truth is known by both of them. But, so far as he maintains that all men have but one passive intellect, and the same intelligible species, differing only as to various phantasms, his opinion is false, as stated above in question 76, article 2. Besides this, there is the opinion of the Platonists, who held that our souls are possessed of knowledge from the very beginning, through the participation of separate forms, as stated above in question 84, article 3 and 4. But that the soul is hindered through its union with the body, from the free consideration of those things which it knows. According to this, the disciple does not acquire fresh knowledge from his master, but is roused by him to consider what he knows, so that to learn would be nothing else than to remember. In the same way they held that natural agents only dispose matter to receive forms, which matter acquires by a participation of separate substances. But against this we have proved above in question 79, article 2, and question 84, article 3, that the passive intellect of the human soul is in pure potentiality to intelligible species, as Aristotle says in On the Soul 3, 4. We must therefore decide the question differently, by saying that the teacher causes knowledge in the learner by reducing him from potentiality to act, as the philosopher says in Physics 8.4. In order to make this clear, we must observe that of effects proceeding from an exterior principle, some proceed from the exterior principle alone, as the form of a house is caused to be in matter by art alone, whereas other effects proceed sometimes from an exterior principle, sometimes from an interior principle. Thus, health is caused in a sick man, sometimes by an exterior principle, namely by the medical art, sometimes by an interior principle, as when a man is healed by the force of nature. In these latter effects, two things must be noticed. First, that art in its work imitates nature, for just as nature heals a man by alteration, digestion, rejection of the matter that caused the sickness, so does art. Secondly, we must remark that the exterior principle, art, acts, not as a principal agent, but as helping the principal agent, which is the interior principle, and by strengthening it, and by furnishing it with instruments and assistance, of which the interior principle makes use in producing the effect. Thus the physician strengthens nature, and employs food and medicine, of which nature makes use for the intended end. Now, it is acquired in man, 
both from an interior principle, as is clear in one who procures knowledge by his own research, and from an exterior principle, as is clear in one who learns by instruction. For in every man there is a certain principle of knowledge, namely, the light of the active intellect, through which certain universal principles of all the sciences are naturally understood as soon as proposed to the intellect. Now, when anyone applies these universal principles to certain particular things, the memory or experience of which he acquires through the senses, then by his own research advancing from the known to the unknown, he obtains knowledge of what he knew not before. Wherefore, anyone who teaches leads the disciple from things known by the latter to the knowledge of things previously unknown to him, according to which the philosopher says in Posterior Analytics one one. All teaching and all learning proceed from previous knowledge. Now, the master leads the disciple from things known to knowledge of the unknown in a twofold manner. Firstly, by proposing to him certain helps or means of instruction, which his intellect can use for the acquisition of science. For instance, he may put before him certain less universal propositions, of which nevertheless the disciple is able to judge from previous knowledge, or he may propose to him some sensible examples, either by way of likeness or of opposition, or something of the sort, from which the intellect of the learner is led to the knowledge of truth previously known. Secondly, by strengthening the intellect of the learner, not indeed by some active power as of a higher nature, as explained above in question 106, article 1, and question 111, article 1, of the angelic enlightenment, because all human intellects are of one grade in the natural order, but inasmuch as he proposes to the disciple the order of principles to conclusions, by reason of his not having sufficient collating power to be able to draw the conclusions from the principles. Hence the philosopher says in Posterior Analytics 1-2 that a demonstration is a syllogism that causes knowledge. In this way a demonstrator causes his hearer to know. Reply to Objection 1. As stated above, the teacher only brings exterior help as the physician who heals. But just as the interior nature is the principal cause of the healing, so the interior light of the intellect is the principal cause of knowledge. But both of these are from God. Therefore, as of God it is written, Who healeth all thy diseases, Psalms 102.3, so of him it is written, He that teacheth man knowledge, Psalm 93.10, inasmuch as the light of his countenance is signed upon us, Psalm 4.7, through which light all things are shown to us. Reply to Objection 2. As Averroes argues, the teacher does not cause knowledge in the disciple after the manner of a natural active cause. Wherefore, knowledge need not be an active quality, but is the principle by which one is directed in teaching, just as art is the principle by which one is directed in working. Reply to Objection 3. The master does not cause the intellectual light in the disciple, nor does he cause the intelligible species directly, but he moves the disciple by teaching, so that the latter, by the power of his intellect, forms intelligible concepts, the signs of which are proposed to him from without. Reply to Objection 4. The signs proposed by the master to the disciple are of things known in a general and confused manner, but not known in detail and distinctly. 
Therefore, when anyone acquires knowledge by himself, he cannot be called self-taught, or be said to have his own master, because perfect knowledge did not precede in him, such as is required in a master. Article 2. Whether man can teach the angels. Objection 1. It would seem that men teach angels. For the Apostle says, in Ephesians 3.10, that the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places through the church. But the church is the union of all the faithful. Therefore, some things are made known to angels through men. Objection 2. Further, the superior angels, who are enlightened immediately concerning divine things by God, can instruct the inferior angels, as stated above in question 116, article 1, and question 112, article 3. But some men are instructed immediately concerning divine things, and by the word of God, as appears principally of the apostles, from Hebrews 1, 1, and 2. Last of all, in those days, God hath spoken to us by his Son. Therefore, some men have been able to teach the angels. Objection 3. Further, the inferior angels are instructed by the superior, but some men are higher than some angels, since some men are taken up to the highest angelic orders, as Gregory says in a homily, homily 34 on the Gospels. Therefore, some of the inferior angels can be instructed by men concerning divine things. On the contrary, Dionysius says in On the Divine Names 4 that every divine enlightenment is born to men by the ministry of the angels. Therefore, angels are not instructed by men concerning divine things. I answer that, as stated above in question 107, article 2, the inferior angels can indeed speak to the superior angels by making their thoughts known to them. But concerning divine things, superior angels are never enlightened by inferior angels. Now, it is manifest that in the same way as inferior angels are subject to the superior, the highest men are subject even to the lowest angels. This is clear from our Lord's words in Matthew 11.11. 11. There hath not risen among them that are born of woman a greater than John the Baptist, yet he that is lesser in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Therefore angels are never enlightened by men concerning divine things, but men can by means of speech make known to angels the thoughts of their hearts, because it belongs to God alone to know the heart's secrets. Reply to Objection 1 Augustine, in On the Literal Interpretation of Genesis 5.19, thus explains this passage of the Apostle, who in the preceding verses says, To me, the least of all the saints, is given this grace, to enlighten all men, that they may see what is the dispensation of the mystery which hath been hidden from eternity in God. Hidden, yet so that the multiform wisdom of God was made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, that is, through the church. As though he were to say, This mystery was hidden from men, but not from the church in heaven, which is contained in the principalities and powers who knew it from all ages, but not before all ages, because the church was at first there, where, after the resurrection, this church composed of men will be gathered together. It can also be explained otherwise that what is hidden is known by the angels, not only in God, but also here, where when it takes place and is made public, as Augustine says further on in, in On the Literal Interpretation of Genesis 5.19. Thus, 
When the mysteries of Christ in the church were fulfilled by the apostles, some things concerning these mysteries became apparent to the angels, which were hidden from them before. In this way we can understand what Jerome says, in his commentary on the epistle to the Ephesians, that from the preaching of the apostles the angels learned certain mysteries, that is to say, through the preaching of the apostles the mysteries were realized in the things themselves, thus by the preaching of Paul the Gentiles were converted, of which mystery the apostle is speaking in the passage quoted. Reply to Objection 2. The apostles were instructed immediately by the word of God, not according to his divinity, but according as he spoke in his human nature. Hence the argument does not prove. Reply to Objection 3. Certain men in this state of life are greater than certain angels, not actually, but virtually, forasmuch as they have such great charity that they can merit a higher degree of beatitude than that possessed by certain angels. In the same way, we might say that the seed of a great tree is virtually greater than a small tree, though actually it is much smaller. Article 3. Whether man, by the power of his soul, can change corporeal matter. Objection 1. It would seem that man, by the power of his soul, can change corporeal matter. For Gregory says in his Dialogues 2.30, Saints work miracles sometimes by prayer, sometimes by their power. Thus Peter by prayer raised the dead Tabitha to life, and by his reproof delivered to death the line Ananias and Sapphira. But, in the working of miracles, a change is wrought in corporeal matter. Therefore, men, by the power of the soul, can change corporeal matter. Objection 2. Further, on these words, Galatians 3.1, Who hath bewitched you, that you should not obey the truth, the gloss says that some have blazing eyes, who by a single look bewitch others, especially children. But this would not be unless the power of the soul could change corporeal matter. Therefore, man can change corporeal matter by the power of his soul. Objection 3. Further, the human body is nobler than other inferior bodies, but by the apprehension of the human soul, the human body is changed to heat and cold, as appears when a man is angry or afraid. Indeed, this change sometimes goes so far as to bring on sickness and death. Much more, then, can the human soul by its power change corporeal matter. On the contrary, Augustine says in On the Trinity 3.8, Corporeal matter obeys God alone at will. I answer that, as stated above in question 110, article 2, corporeal matter is not changed to, the reception of, a form save either by some agent composed of matter and form, or by God himself, in whom both matter and form pre-exist virtually, as in the primordial cause of both. Wherefore, of the angels also we have stated, question 110, article 2, that they cannot change corporeal matter by their natural power, except by employing corporeal agents for the production of certain effects. Much less, therefore, can the soul, by its natural power, change corporeal matter, except by means of bodies. Reply to Objection 1. The saints are said to work miracles by the grace of God, not of nature. This is clear from what Gregory says in the same place. Those who are the sons of God, in power, as John says, what wonder is there that they should work miracles by that power? Reply to Objection 2. 
Avicenna assigns the cause of bewitchment to the fact that corporeal matter has a natural tendency to obey spiritual substance rather than natural contrary agents. Therefore, when the soul is of a strong imagination, it can change corporeal matter. This, he says, is the cause of the evil eye. But it has been shown above, in question 110, article 2, that corporeal matter does not obey spiritual substances at will, but the Creator alone. Therefore, it is better to say that by a strong imagination the corporeal spirits of the body united to that soul are changed, which change in the spirits takes place especially in the eyes, to which the more subtle spirits can reach. And the eyes infect the air which is in contact with them to a certain distance. In the same way as a new and clear mirror contracts a tarnish from the look of a menstruata, as Aristotle says in On Sleep and Waking too. Hence, when a soul is vehemently moved to wickedness, as occurs mostly in little old women, according to the above explanation, the countenance becomes venomous and hurtful, especially to children, who have a tender and most impressionable body. It is also possible that by God's permission, or from some hidden deed, the spiteful demons cooperate in this, as the witches may have some compact with them. Reply to Objection 3. The soul is united to the body as its form, and the sensitive appetite, which obeys the reason in a certain way, as stated above in question 81, article 3, it is the act of a corporeal organ. Therefore, at the apprehension of the human soul, the sensitive appetite must needs be moved with an accompanying corporeal operation. But the apprehension of the human soul does not suffice to work a change in exterior bodies, except by means of a change in the body united to it, as stated above, in reply to objection 2. Article 4. Whether the separate human soul can move bodies at least locally? Objection 1. It seems that the separate human soul can move bodies at least locally, for a body naturally obeys a spiritual substance as to local motion, as stated above in question 110, article 5. But the separate soul is a spiritual substance, therefore it can move exterior bodies by its command. Objection 2. Further, in the itinerary of Clement, it is said in the narrative of Nicetus to Peter, that Simon Magnus, by sorcery, retained power over the soul of a child that he had slain, and that through this soul he worked magical wonders. But this could not have been without some corporeal change at least as to place. Therefore, the separate soul has the power to move bodies locally. On the contrary, the philosopher says in On the Soul 1.3 that the soul cannot move any other body whatsoever but its own. I answer that the separate soul cannot by its natural power move a body, for it is manifest that, even while the soul is united to the body, it does not move the body except as endowed with life, so that if one of the members become lifeless, it does not obey the soul as to locomotion. Now it is also manifest that no body is quickened by the separate soul. Therefore, within the limits of its natural power, the separate soul cannot command the obedience of a body, though and by the power of God, it can exceed those limits. Reply to Objection 1. There are certain spiritual substances whose powers are not determinate to certain bodies. Such are the angels, who are naturally unfettered by a body. Consequently, various bodies may obey them as to movement. 
But if the motive power of a separate substance is naturally determinate to move a certain body, that substance will not be able to move a body of higher degree, but only one of lower degree. Thus, according to philosophers, the mover of the lower heaven cannot move the higher heaven. Wherefore, since the soul is by its nature determinate to move the body of which it is the form, it cannot by its natural power move any other body. Reply to Objection 2 As Augustine in The City of God 10.11 and Chrysostom in his homily 28 on Matthew say, the demons often pretend to be the souls of the dead in order to confirm the error of heathen superstition. It is therefore credible that Simon Magnus was deceived by some demon who pretended to be the soul of the child whom the magician had slain. End of question 117「Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Divine Government」This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Divine Government by St. Thomas Aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province Question 118 of the production of man from man as to the soul. Article 1. Whether the sensitive soul is transmitted with the semen. Objection 1. It would seem that the sensitive soul is not transmitted with the semen, but created by God. For every perfect substance, not composed of matter and form, that begins to exist, acquires existence not by generation, but by creation. For nothing is generated save from matter. But the sensitive soul is a perfect substance, otherwise it could not move the body, and since it is the form of a body, it is not composed of matter and form. Therefore it begins to exist not by generation, but by creation. Objection 2. Further, in living things the principle of generation is the generating power, which, since it is one of the powers of the vegetative soul, is of a lower order than the sensitive soul. Now, nothing acts beyond its species. Therefore, the sensitive soul cannot be caused by the animal's generating power. Objection 3. Further, the generator begets its like, so that the form of the generator must be actually in the cause of generation. But neither the sensitive soul itself nor any part thereof is actually in the semen, for no part of the sensitive soul is elsewhere than in some part of the body while in the semen there is not even a particle of the body, because there is not a particle of the body which is not made from the semen and by the power thereof. Therefore, the sensitive soul is not produced through the semen. Objection 4. Further, if there be in the semen any principle productive of the sensitive soul, this principle either remains after the animal is begotten, or it does not remain. Now, it cannot remain for either it would be identified with the sensitive soul of the begotten animal, which is impossible, for thus there would be identity between begetter and begotten, maker and maid, or it would be distinct therefrom. And again, this is impossible, for it has been proved above in question 76, article 4, that in one man there is but one formal principle, which is the soul. If, on the other hand, the aforesaid principle does not remain, 
This again seems to be impossible, for thus an agent would act to its own destruction, which cannot be. Therefore the sensitive soul cannot be generated from the semen. On the contrary, the power in the semen is to the animal seminally generated as the power in the elements of the world is to animals produced from these elements, for instance by putrefaction. But in the latter animals the soul is produced by the elemental power, according to Genesis 1.20. Let the waters bring forth the creeping creatures having life. Therefore also the souls of animals seminally generated are produced by the seminal power. I answer that, some have held that the sensitive souls of animals are created by God. Question 65, Article 4. This opinion would hold if the sensitive soul were subsistent, having been an operation of itself. For thus, as having been an operation of itself, to be made would needs be proper to it. And since a simple and subsistent thing cannot be made except by creation, it would follow that the sensitive soul would arrive at existence by creation. But this principle is false, namely, that being and operation are proper to the sensitive soul, as has been made clear above in question 75, article 3, for it would not cease to exist when the body perishes. Since, therefore, it is not a subsistent form, its relation to existence is that of the corporeal forms, to which existence does not belong as proper to them, but which are said to exist for as much as the subsistent composites exist through them. Wherefore, to be made is proper to composites. And since the generator is like the generated, it follows of necessity that both the sensitive soul and all other like forms are naturally brought into existence by certain corporeal agents that reduce the matter from potentiality to act through some corporeal power of which they are possessed. Now, the more powerful an agent the greater scope its action has. For instance, the hotter a body, the greater the distance to which its heat carries. Therefore, bodies not endowed with life, which are the lowest in the order of nature, generate their like, not through some medium, but by themselves. Thus, fire by itself generates fire. But living bodies, as being more powerful, act so as to generate their like, both without and with a medium without a medium, in the work of nutrition, in which flesh generates flesh, with a medium, in the act of generation, because the semen of the animal or plant derives a certain act of force from the soul of the generator, just as the instrument derives a certain motive power from the principal agent. And, as it matters not whether we say that something is moved by the instrument or by the principal agent, so neither does it matter whether we say that the soul of the generated is caused by the soul of the generator, or by some seminal power derived therefrom. Reply to Objection 1. The sensitive soul is not a perfect self-subsistent substance. We have said enough, in question 25, article 3, on this point, nor need we repeat it here. Reply to Objection 2. The generating power begets not only by its own virtue, but by that of the whole soul, of which it is a power. Therefore the generating power of a plant generates a plant, and that of an animal begets an animal. For the more perfect the soul is, to so much a more perfect effect is its generating power ordained. Reply to Objection 3. This act of force which is in the semen, and which is derived from the soul of the generator, is, 
as it were, a certain movement of this soul itself. Nor is it the soul or a part of the soul, save virtually. Thus the form of a bed is not in the saw or the axe, but a certain movement towards that form. Consequently, there is no need for this active force to have an actual organ, but it is based on the vital spirit in the semen which is frothy, as is attested by its whiteness, in which spirit, moreover, there is a certain heat derived from the power of the heavenly bodies, by virtue of which the inferior bodies also act towards the production of the species as stated above, in question 115, article 3, reply to objection 2. And since in this vital spirit the power of the soul is concurrent with the power of a heavenly body, it has been said that man and the sun generate man. Moreover, elemental heat is employed instrumentally by the soul's power, as also by the nutritive power, as stated in On the Soul 2.4. Reply to Objection 4. In perfect animals, generated by coition, the active force is in the semen of the male, as the philosopher says in On the Generation of Animals 2.3. But the fetal matter is provided by the female. In this matter, the vegetative soul exists from the very beginning, not as to the second act, but as to the first act, as the sensitive soul is in one who sleeps. But as soon as it begins to attract nourishment, then it already operates its act. This matter, therefore, is transmuted by the power which is in the semen of the male, until it is actually informed by the sensitive soul. Not as though the force itself which was in the semen becomes the sensitive soul, for thus, indeed, the generator and generated would be identical. Moreover, this would be more like nourishment and growth than generation, as the philosopher says. And after the sensitive soul, by the power of the active principle in the semen, has been produced in one of the principal parts of the thing generated, then it is that the sensitive soul of the offspring begins to work towards the perfection of its own body, by nourishment and growth. As to the active power which was in the semen, it ceases to exist, when the semen is dissolved and the vital spirit thereof vanishes. Nor is there anything unreasonable in this, because this force is not the principal, but the instrumental agent, and the movement of an instrument ceases when once the effect has been produced. Article 2. Whether the intellectual soul is produced from the semen. Objection 1. It would seem that the intellectual soul is produced from the semen, for it is written in Genesis 46.26, All the souls that came out of Jacob's thigh, 66. But nothing is produced from the thigh of a man except from the semen. Therefore, the intellectual soul is produced from the semen. Objection 2. Further, as shown above in question 76, article 3, the intellectual, sensitive, and nutritive souls are, in substance, one soul in man. But the sensitive soul in man is generated from the semen, as in other animals. Wherefore, the philosopher says in On the Generation of Animals 2.3, that the animal and the man are not made at the same time. But first of all, the animal is made, having a sensitive soul. Therefore also the intellectual soul is produced from the semen. Objection 3. Further, it is one and the same agent whose action is directed to the matter and to the form. Else, from the matter and the form, there would not result something simply one. 
but the intellectual soul is the form of the human body, which is produced by the power of the semen. Therefore, the intellectual soul also is produced by the power of the semen. Objection 4. Further, man begets his like in species, but the human species is constituted by the rational soul. Therefore, the rational soul is from the begetter. Objection 5. Further, it cannot be said that God concurs in sin. But if the rational soul be created by God, sometimes God concurs in the sin of adultery, since sometimes offspring is begotten of illicit intercourse. Therefore the rational soul is not created by God. On the contrary, it is written in On the Dogmas of the Church, 14, that the rational soul is not engendered by coition. I answer that, it is impossible for an act of power existing in matter to extend its action to the production of an immaterial effect. Now it is manifest that the intellectual principle in man transcends matter, for it has an operation in which the body takes no part whatever. It is therefore impossible for the seminal power to produce the intellectual principle. Again, the seminal power acts by virtue of the soul of the begetter according as the soul of the begetter is the act of the body, making use of the body in its operation. Now the body has nothing whatever to do in the operation of the intellect. Therefore, the power of the intellectual principle, as intellectual, cannot reach the semen. Hence the philosopher says in On the Generation of Animals 2.3, it follows that the intellect alone comes from without. Again, since the intellectual soul has an operation independent of the body, it is subsistent, as proved above in question 75, article 2. Therefore, to be and to be made are proper to it. Moreover, since it is an immaterial substance, it cannot be caused through generation, but only through creation by God. Therefore, to hold that the intellectual soul is caused by the begetter is nothing else than to hold that the soul to be non-subsistent and consequently to perish with the body. It is therefore heretical to say that the intellectual soul is transmitted with the semen. Reply to Objection 1. In the passage quoted, the part is put instead of the whole, the soul for the whole man, and by the figure of Seneduke. Reply to Objection 2. Some say that the vital functions observed in the embryo are not from its soul, but from the soul of the mother, or from the formative power of the semen. Both of these explanations are false, for vital functions such as feeling, nourishment, and growth cannot be from an extrinsic principle. Consequently, it must be said that the soul is in the embryo, the nutritive soul from the beginning, then the sensitive, lastly the intellectual soul. Therefore, some say that in addition to the vegetative soul, which existed first, another, namely the sensitive soul, supervenes, and in addition to this, again another, namely the intellectual soul. Thus there would be in man three souls, of which one would be in potentiality to another. This has been disproved above in question 76, article 3. Therefore, others say that the same soul, which was at first merely vegetative, afterwards, through the action of the seminal power, becomes a sensitive soul, and finally this same soul becomes intellectual, not indeed through the active seminal power, but by the power of a higher agent, namely God's enlightening the soul from without. For this reason the philosopher says that the intellect comes from without. But this will not hold. First, because no substantial form is susceptible of more or less. But addition of greater perfection constitutes another species, 
just as the addition of unity constitutes another species of number. Now, it is not possible for the same identical form to belong to different species. Secondly, because it would follow that the generation of an animal would be a continuous movement, proceeding gradually from the imperfect to the perfect, as happens in alteration. Thirdly, because it would follow that the generation of a man or an animal is not generation simply, because the subject thereof would be a being in act. For if the vegetative soul is from the beginning in the matter of offspring, and is subsequently gradually brought to perfection, this will imply addition of further perfection without corruption of the preceding perfection. And this is contrary to the nature of generation properly so called. Fourthly, because either that which is caused by the action of God is something subsistent, and thus it must needs be essentially distinct from the pre-existing form, which was non-subsistent, and we shall then come back to the opinion of those who held the existence of several souls in the body, or else it is not subsistent, but a perfection of the pre-existing soul, and from this it follows of necessity that the intellectual soul perishes with the body, which cannot be admitted. There is again another explanation, according to those who held that all men have but one intellect in common, but this has been disproved above in question 76, article 2. We must therefore say that since the generation of one thing is the corruption of another, it follows of necessity that both in man and in other animals, when a more perfect form supervenes the previous form, is corrupted yet so that the supervening form contains the perfection of the previous form, and something in addition. It is in this way that, through many generations and corruptions, we arrive at the ultimate substantial form, both in man and other animals. This, indeed, is apparent to the senses in animals generated from putrefaction. We conclude, therefore, that the intellectual soul is created by God at the end of human generation, and this soul is at the same time sensitive and nutritive, the pre-existing forms being corrupted. Reply to Objection 3. This argument holds in the case of diverse agents not ordered to one another. But where there are many agents ordered to one another, nothing hinders the power of the higher agent from reaching to the ultimate form, while the powers of the inferior agents extend only to some disposition of matter, Thus, in the generation of an animal, the seminal power disposes the matter, but the power of the soul gives the form. Now, it is manifest from what has been said above, in question 105, article 5, and question 110, article 1, that the whole of corporeal nature acts as the instrument of a spiritual power, especially of God. Therefore, nothing hinders the formation of the body from being due to a corporeal power, while the intellectual soul is from God alone. Reply to objection 4. Man begets his like, forasmuch as by his seminal power the matter is disposed for the reception of a certain species of form. Reply to objection 5. In the action of the adulterer, what is of nature is good, in this God concurs. But what there is of inordinate lust is evil, and this God does not concur. Article 3 whether human souls were created together at the beginning of the world. Objection 1. It would seem that human souls were created together at the beginning of the world. For it is written, Genesis 2.2, God rested him from all his work which he had done. 
This would not be true if he created new souls every day. Therefore all souls were created at the same time. Objection 2. Further, spiritual substances before all others belong to the perfection of the universe. If, therefore, souls were created with the bodies, every day innumerable spiritual substances would be added to the perfection of the universe. Consequently, at the beginning, the universe would have been imperfect. This is contrary to Genesis 2.2, where it is said that God ended all his work. Objection 3. Further, the end of a thing corresponds to its beginning, but the intellectual soul remains when the body perishes. Therefore it began to exist before the body. On the contrary, it is said in On the Dogmas of the Church 14 and 18 that the soul is created together with the body. I answer that some have maintained that it is accidental to the intellectual soul to be united to the body, asserting that the soul is of the same nature as those spiritual substances which are not united to a body. These, therefore, stated that the souls of men were created together with the angels at the beginning. But this statement is false, firstly, in the very principle on which it is based. For if it were accidental to the soul to be united to the body, it would follow that man who results from this union is a being by accident, or that the soul is a man, which is false, as proved above in question 75, article 4. Moreover, that the human soul is not the same nature as the angels is proved from the different mode of understanding, as shown above in question 55, article 2, and question 85, article 1. For man understands through receiving from the senses, and turning to phantasms, as stated above in question 84, article 6 and 7, and question 85, article 1. For this reason the soul needs to be united to the body, which is necessary to it for the operation of the sensitive part, whereas this cannot be said of an angel. Secondly, this statement can be proved to be false in itself. For, if it is natural to the soul to be united to the body, it is unnatural to it to be without a body, and as long as it is without a body, it is deprived of its natural perfection. Now it was not fitting that God should begin his work with things imperfect and unnatural, for he did not make man without a hand or a foot, which are natural parts of a man. Much less, therefore, did he make the soul without a body. But if someone say that it is not natural to the soul to be united to the body, he must give the reason why it is united to a body. And the reason must be either because the soul so willed, or for some other reason. If because the soul willed it, this seems incongruous. First, because it would be unreasonable of the soul to wish to be united to the body, if it did not need the body. For if it did need it, it would be natural for it to be united to it, since nature does not fail in what is necessary. Secondly, because there would be no reason why, having been created from the beginning of the world, the soul should, after such a long time, come to wish to be united to the body. For a spiritual substance is above time, and superior to the heavenly revolutions. Thirdly, because it would seem that this body was united to this soul by chance, since for this union to take place two wills would have to concur, to wit, that of the incoming soul and that of the begetter. If, however, this union be neither voluntary nor natural on the part of the soul, then it must be the result of some violent cause, and to the soul would have something of a penal and afflicting nature. 
This is in keeping with the opinion of Origen, who held that souls were embodied in punishment of sin. Since therefore all these opinions are unreasonable, we must simply confess that souls were not created before bodies, but are created at the same time as they are infused into them. Reply to Objection 1. God is said to have rested on the seventh day, not from all work, since we read in John 5.17, My Father worketh until now, but from the creation of any new genre and species, which may not have already existed in the first works. For in this sense, the souls which are created now existed already, as to the likeness of the species, in the first works, which included the creation of Adam's soul. Reply to Objection 2. Something can be added every day to the perfection of the universe, as to the number of individuals, but not as to the number of species. Reply to Objection 3. That the soul remains without the body is due to the corruption of the body, which was a result of sin. Consequently, it was not fitting that God should make the soul without the body from the beginning. For, as it is written in Wisdom one thirteen and 16, God made not death, but the wicked with works and words have called it to them. End of question 118question 119 of summa theologica pars prima on the divine government this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org summa theologica pars prima on the divine government by saint thomas aquinas Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 119. Of the Propagation of Man as to the Body. We now consider the propagation of man as to the body. Concerning this, there are two points of inquiry. 1. Whether any part of the food is changed into true human nature. 2. Whether the semen, which is the principle of human generation, is produced from the surplus food first article whether some part of the food is changed into true human nature objection one it would seem that none of the food is changed into true human nature for it is written matthews chapter fifteen verse seventeen whatsoever entereth into the mouth goeth into the belly and is cast out into the privy but what is cast out is not changed into the reality of human nature. Therefore, none of the food is changed into true human nature. Objection 2. Further, the philosopher, Generation of Animals, 1 and 5, distinguishes flesh belonging to the species from flesh belonging to matter, and says that the latter comes and goes. Now what is formed from food comes and goes. Therefore, what is produced from food is flesh belonging to matter, not the species. But what belongs to true human nature belongs to the species. Therefore, the food is not changed into true human nature. Objection 3. Further, the radical humor seems to belong to the reality of human nature, and if it be lost, it cannot be recovered according to physicians but it could be recovered if the food were changed into the humor 
Therefore, food is not changed into true human nature. Objection 4. Further, if the food were changed into true human nature, whatever is lost in man could be restored, but man's death is due only to the loss of something. Therefore, man would be able by taking food to insure himself against death in perpetuity. Objection 5. Further, if the food is changed into true human nature, there is nothing in man which may not recede or be repaired. For what is generated in a man from his food can both recede and be repaired. If therefore a man lived long enough, it would follow that in the end nothing would be left in him of what belonged to him at the beginning. Consequently, he would not be numerically the same man throughout his life since for the thing to be numerically the same identity of matter is necessary but this is incongruous therefore the food is not changed into true human nature on the contrary augustine says on true religion eleven the bodily food when corrupted that is having lost its form is changed into the texture of the members but the texture of the members belongs to true human nature therefore the food is changed into the reality of human nature i answer that according to the philosopher metaphysics two the relation of a thing to truth is the same as its relation to being therefore that belongs to the true nature of anything which enters into the constitution of that nature but nature can be considered in two ways firstly in general according to the species secondly as in the individual and whereas the form and the common matter belong to a thing's true nature considered in general individual signate matter and the form individualized by that matter belong to the true nature considered in this particular individual thus a soul and body belong to the true human nature in general but to the true human nature of peter and martin belong this soul and this body now there are certain things whose form cannot exist but in one individual matter thus the form of the sun cannot exist save in the matter in which it actually is and in this sense some have said that the human form cannot exist but in a certain individual matter which they said was given that form at the very beginning in the first man so that whatever may have been added to that which was derived by posterity from the first parent does not belong to the truth of human nature as not receiving in truth the form of human nature but said they that matter which in the first man was the subject of the human form was multiplied in itself and in this way the multitude of human bodies is derived from the body of the first man according to this the food is not changed into true human nature we take food they stated in order to help nature to resist the action of natural heat and prevent the consumption of the radical humour just as lead or tin is mixed with silver to prevent its being consumed by fire but this is unreasonable in many ways firstly because it comes to the same that a form can be produced in another matter or that it can cease to be in its proper matter 
wherefore all things that can be generated are corruptible and conversely now it is manifest that the human form can cease to exist in this particular matter which is its subject else the human body would not be corruptible consequently it can begin to exist in another matter so that something else be changed into true human nature secondly because in all beings whose entire matter is contained in one individual there is only one individual in the species as is clearly the case with the sun moon and such like thus there would only be one individual of the human species thirdly because multiplication of matter cannot be understood otherwise than either in respect of quantity only as in things which are rarefied so that their matter increases in dimensions or in respect of the substance itself of the matter but as long as the substance alone of matter remains it cannot be said to be multiplied for multitude cannot consist in the addition of a thing to itself since of necessity it can only result from division therefore some other substance must be added to matter either by creation or by something else being changed into it consequently no matter can be multiplied save either by rarefaction as when air is made from water or by the change of some other things as fire is multiplied by the addition of wood or lastly by creation now it is manifest that the multiplication of matter in the human body does not occur by rarefaction for thus the body of a man of perfect age would be more imperfect than the body of a child nor does it occur by creation of fresh matter for according to gregory morals in the book of job thirty two all things were created together as to the substance of matter but not as to the specific form consequently the multiplication of the human body can only be the result of the food being changed into the true human nature fourthly because since man does not differ from animals and plants in regard to the vegetative soul it would follow that the bodies of animals and plants do not increase through a change of nourishment into the body so nourished but through some kind of multiplication which multiplication cannot be natural since the matter cannot naturally extend beyond a certain fixed quantity nor again does anything increase naturally save either by rarefaction or the change of something else into it consequently the whole process of generation and nourishment which are called natural forces would be miraculous which is altogether inadmissible wherefore others have said that the human form can indeed begin to exist in some other matter if we consider the human nature in general but not if we consider it as in this individual for in the individual the form remains confined to a certain determinate matter on which it is first imprinted at the generation of that individual so that it never leaves that matter until the ultimate dissolution of the individual and this matter say they principally belongs to the true human nature but since this matter does not suffice for the requisite quantity some other matter must be added 
through the change of food into the substance of the individual partaking thereof in such a quantity as suffices for the increase required and this matter they state belongs secondarily to the true human nature because it is not required for the primary existence of the individual but for the quantity due to him and if anything further is produced from the food this does not belong to true human nature properly speaking however this also is inadmissible first because this opinion judges of living bodies as of inanimate bodies in which although there be a power of generating their like in species there is not the power of generating their like in the individual which power in living bodies is the nutritive power nothing therefore would be added to living bodies by their nutritive power if their food were not changed into their true nature secondly because the active seminal power is a certain impression derived from the soul of the begetter as stated above question one hundred eighteen article one hence it cannot have a greater power in acting than the soul from which it is derived if therefore by the seminal power a certain matter truly assumes the form of human nature much more can the soul by the nutritive power imprint the true form of human nature on the food which is assimilated thirdly because food is needed not only for growth else at the term of growth food would be needful no longer but also to renew that which is lost by the action of natural heat but there would be no renewal unless what is formed from the food took the place of what is lost wherefore just as that which was there previously belonged to true human nature so also does that which is formed from the food therefore according to others it must be said that the food is really changed into the true human nature by reason of its assuming the specific form of flesh bones and such like parts this is what the philosopher says on the soul two and four food nourishes inasmuch as it is potentially flesh reply objection one our lord does not say that the whole of what enters into the mouth but all because something from every kind of food is cast out into the privy it may also be said that whatever is generated from food can be dissolved by natural heat and be cast aside through the pores as jerome expounds the passage reply objection to by flesh belonging to the species some have understood that which first receives the human species which is derived from the begetter this they say lasts as long as the individual does by flesh belonging to the matter these understand what is generated from food and this they say does not always remain but as it comes so it goes but this is contrary to the mind of aristotle for he says there that just as in things which have their species in matter for instance wood or stone so in flesh there is something belonging to the species and something belonging to matter now it is clear that this distinction has no place in inanimate things which are not generated seminally or nourished 
again since what is generated from food is united to by mixing with the body so nourished just as water is mixed with wine as the philosopher says there by way of example that which is added and that to which it is added cannot be different natures since they are already made one by being mixed together therefore there is no reason for saying that one is destroyed by natural heat while the other remains it must therefore be said that this distinction of the philosopher is not of different kinds of flesh but of the same flesh considered from different points of view for if we consider the flesh according to the species that is according to that which is formed therein thus it remains always because the nature of flesh always remains together with its natural disposition but if we consider flesh according to matter then it does not remain but is gradually destroyed and renewed thus in the fire of a furnace the form of fire remains but the matter is gradually consumed and other matter is substituted in its place reply objection three the radical humor is said to comprise whatever the virtue of the species is founded on if this be taken away it cannot be renewed as when a man's hand or foot is amputated but the nutritive humour is that which has not yet received perfectly the specific nature but is on the way thereto such is the blood and the like wherefore if such be taken away the virtue of the species remains in its root which is not destroyed reply objection four every virtue of a possible body is weakened by continuous action because such agents are also patient therefore the transforming virtue is strong at first so as to be able to transform not only enough for the renewal of what is lost but also for growth later on it can only transform enough for the renewal of what is lost and then growth ceases at last it cannot even do this and then begins decline in fine when this virtue fails altogether the animal dies thus the virtue of wine that transforms the water added to it is weakened by further additions of water so as to become at length watery as the philosopher says by way of example generation of animals one and five reply objection five as the philosopher says generation of animals one and five when a certain matter is directly transformed into fire then fire is said to be generated anew but when matter is transformed into a fire already existing then fire is said to be fed wherefore if the entire matter together loses the form of fire and another matter transformed into fire there will be another distinct fire but if while one piece of wood is burning other wood is laid on and so on until the first piece is entirely consumed the same identical fire will remain all the time because that which is added passes into what pre-existed it is the same with living bodies in which by means of nourishment that is renewed which was consumed by natural heat second article whether the semen is produced from surplus food objection one it would seem that the semen is not produced from the surplus food but from the substance of the begetter for damascene says 
on the orthodox faith one and eight that generation is a work of nature producing from the substance of the begetter that which is begotten but that which is generated is produced from the semen therefore the semen is produced from the substance of the begetter objection to further the son is like his father in respect of that which he receives from him but if the semen from which something is generated is produced from the surplus food a man would receive nothing from his grandfather and his ancestors in whom the food never existed therefore a man would not be more like to his grandfather or ancestors than to any other man objection three further the food of the generator is sometimes the flesh of cows pigs and such like if therefore the semen were produced from surplus food the man begotten of such semen would be more akin to the cow and the pig than to his father or other relations objection four further augustine says the literal meaning of genesis ten and twenty that we were in adam not only by seminal virtue but also in the very substance of the body but this would not be if the semen were produced from surplus food therefore the semen is not produced therefrom on the contrary the philosopher proves in many ways generation of animals one and eighteen that the semen is surplus food i answer that this question depends in some way on what has been stated above article one and question one hundred eighteen article one for if human nature has a virtue for the communication of its form to alien matter not only in another but also in its own subject it is clear that the food which at first is dissimilar becomes at length similar through the form communicated to it now it belongs to the natural order that a thing should be reduced from potentiality to act gradually hence in things generated we observe that at first each is imperfect and is afterwards perfected but it is clear that the common is to the proper and determinate as imperfect is to perfect therefore we see that in the generation of an animal the animal is generated first then the man or the horse so therefore food first of all receives a certain common virtue in regard to all the parts of the body which virtue is subsequently determinate to this or that part now it is not possible that the semen be a kind of solution from what is already transformed into the substance of the members for this solution if it does not retain the nature of the member it is taken from it would no longer be of the nature of the begetter and would be due to a process of corruption and consequently it would not have the power of transforming something else into the likeness of that nature but if it retained the nature of the member it is taken from then since it is limited to a certain part of the body it would not have the power of moving towards the production of the whole nature but only the nature of that part unless one were to say that the solution is taken from all the parts of the body and that it retains the nature of each part thus the semen would be a small animal in act and generation of animal from animal would be a mere division as mud is generated from mud and as animals which continue to live after being cut in two which is inadmissible
it remains to be said therefore that the semen is not something separated from what was before the actual whole rather is it the whole though potentially having the power derived from the soul of the begetter to produce the whole body as stated above article one and question one hundred eight article one now that which is in potentiality to the whole is that which is generated from the food before it is transformed into the substance of the members therefore the semen is taken from this in this sense the nutritive power is said to serve the generative power because what is transformed by the nutritive power is employed as semen by the generative power a sign of this according to the philosopher is that animals of great size which require much food have little semen in proportion to the size of their bodies and generate seldom in like manner fat men and for the same reason reply objection one generation is from the substance of the begetter in animals and plants inasmuch as the semen owes its virtue to the form of the begetter and inasmuch as it is in potentiality to the substance reply objection two the likeness of the begetter to the begotten is on account not of the matter but of the form of the agent that generates its like wherefore in order for a man to be like his grandfather there is no need that the corporeal seminal matter should have been in the grandfather but that there be in the semen a virtue derived from the soul of the grandfather through the father in like manner the third objection is answered for kinship is not in relation to matter but rather to the derivation of the forms reply objection four these words of augustine are not to be understood as though the immediate seminal virtue or the corporeal substance from which this individual was formed were actually in adam but so that both were in adam as in principle for even the corporeal matter which is supplied by the mother and which she calls the corporeal substance is originally derived from adam and likewise the active seminal power of the father which is the immediate seminal virtue in the production of this man but christ is said to have been in adam according to the corporeal substance not according to the seminal virtue because the matter from which his body was formed and which was supplied by the virgin mother was derived from adam whereas the active virtue was not derived from adam because his body was not formed by the seminal virtue of a man but by the operation of the holy ghost for such a birth was becoming to him hymn for vespers at christmas breviary order of preachers who is above all god forever blessed amen end of question 119 recording by shena ser fresno california end of summa theologica pars prima on the divine government by saint thomas aquinas translated by the fathers of the english dominican province